What might Tuesday's election results and public opinion tell us about what's ahead? We sit down with one of the most respected pollsters in the country, Iowa's own Ann Selzer, on this edition of Iowa Press. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities. They are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com. For decades, Iowa Press has brought you political leaders and newsmakers from across Iowa and beyond, celebrating 50 years of broadcast excellence on statewide Iowa PBS. This is the Friday, November 11th edition of Iowa Press. Here is Kay Anderson. Our guest started at the Des Moines Register in late 1987, right before the 1988 caucuses. She founded Seltzer and Company in 1996, and she's been involved in innumerable Iowa polls and the results that you read online and in your newspaper. Ann Seltzer, welcome back to Iowa Press. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Joining our conversation are Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio and Aaron Murphy of the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. So, Ann, obviously a lot to go through here with the midterm elections that just happened earlier this week. Um, in Iowa, there were some interesting results from your poll in Iowa's U.S. Senate race. The, your penultimate poll showed a very close race between uh, Mike Frank and the Democratic challenger and Chuck Grassley, the Republican incumbent. I believe it was a three-point margin That's in that right. one. And then your final poll just before Election Day showed, I think, an 11-point margin. Do I remember that right? Very so, close to that. Somewhere in that Double ballpark. Digits, so, yes. so what 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 were you able to see in there? What happened? Why, why that shift in a relatively short amount of time, only a matter of weeks? Well, as you can imagine, when that earlier poll came out, there was a lot of talk on Twitter and elsewhere about this can't possibly be right. And then the next day, we released the governor's poll, which showed her with a 17-point lead. So all of the speculation that we had a, a sample that was um, not weighted properly or didn't include the right cross-section, that sort of dried up. Um, what happens is campaigns. <laughs> and I think what really happened was in turnout. Um, so we early had perhaps um, more enthusiasm. It was, it was closer to when the Dobbs decision was made and that abortion was a, an issue that was really uh, sort of igniting on the Democratic side. And then when the time our final poll came around, that seemed to have settled, and independent voters, for one, uh, were more backing Grassley. Also, um, Mike Franken's lead with women wasn't particularly strong, and the lead that Grassley held with men was, in fact, 
quite strong. And we normally see those things, that gender gap, offset each other. And, and that's one of the things we didn't see in that final poll. Something somewhat similar happened two years ago as well in Iowa's U.S. Senate race between uh, Joni, Republican Joni Ernst and Democrat Teresa Greenfield, and where your penultimate poll actually showed Teresa Greenfield ahead in that one, and then, and then your last poll hold showed Ernst ahead, and she ultimately won that race. Is there something, I was wondering, is there a correlation there? Is, do our Iowa voters in these races kind of going through a shopping process still maybe in the final stages of these campaigns? I wish I had an answer for that. <laughs> I mean, you had two good candidates in terms of the Teresa Greenfield and the Joni Ernst. You had two good candidates in the Mike Franken and Chuck Grassley. Um, but some things sort of sort themselves out. One of the things that I think also happened is that we had a strong governor, popular governor, and who was challenged by somebody not very well known. And every poll that we did, we did three pre-election polls, Kim Reynolds held a 17-point lead, roughly, plus or minus. And that was consistent all the way through. And so I think part of this, uh, what happened, is that Republicans kind of decided to be Republicans and they persuaded some independents to come along with them. But th those last two weeks ahead of an election, you don't get a busier time for people trying to persuade people, number one, who to vote for, but secondly, to show up and vote. Let's talk about that governor's race. Uh, you said 17-point lead for Governor Reynolds in those last two polls that were published. Did she carry a lot of these down-ticket races? Is it, was it the, you know, the chairman of the Republican Party always says that we're the party of Kim Reynolds? I mean, <laughs> is that what panned out on Election Day? You know, you could, it, it's speculation at, yeah, at this yeah. point, but it's, it holds, that idea holds water. Yeah. That is that you had longtime Attorney General Tom Miller, who had been leading uh, by a, a double-digit margin in our earlier poll, and, uh, and he lost it. He, we, we had him within two points, which just didn't seem possible. So did Kim Reynolds sort of carry them through? If you recall, she said at one point, I want my own yeah, attorney general. Point. I want my own auditor. And we don't know about the auditor as we sit here today. Um, and I don't know if she said it repeatedly, but the, the time I certainly heard it, I thought, well, that's interesting. That's very interesting. So people, I think, who had clearly been split-ticket voters, that is, they'd vote for a Republican governor, but they'd vote for Tom Miller, decided, well, let's, let's do this more along party lines. Do these polls say anything? You know, for years we've talked about the voter registration in Iowa being roughly a third, a third, a third, mm -hmm. with Republican, Democratic, and no-party voters. Does this say anything to you these days about who no-party voters are? are? Are they really... Uh, not per, you know, persuaded by the political winds or the partisan divide that's currently in this country? Well, they're a third, a third, a third, according to the Secretary of State's mm, data. Yeah. We ask them to self-identify as independent. And I think they, they're, to say that they're fickle is, doesn't give them enough respect. That is, they are persuadable. And so whatever is happening, they're, they're open to thinking about things a different way. That's not to say that they are the most informed or the most enthusiastic. So there's, there is that that's happening with that group as well. They're, so they, they just don't lock in, we might put it that way. So how big is that piece of the pie? Do you have a sense of that? Of what, like what percentage of voters are, are that that you're that. describing? I could look that up. Well, <laughs> um, 
In an interview with Radio Iowa on Election Day, Senator Grassley, reflecting on how this race had been different from his previous races, said, it used to be there were 15% of persuadable people. And he said, this time around, it's about 5%. Does that sort of match the data that you have? Well, it depends on how you're defining persuadable. And I think what he may be saying is <coughs> the, the proportion of people who, when we ask, who are you going to vote for? And if they say not sure, we ask them, well, where do you lean? And they, that gets minuscule more voters there. But the, what's left over is sometimes as high as 15%. That is, they've not decided, they're not sure, they don't want to tell us, um, and he may be saying that that's dropped down to 5%. I would, I would think about persuadable. I'm using persuadable in a different way. Okay. Well, following up on Clay's line of questioning, does your polling show that Iowa is, quote-unquote, a red state? I don't know what other definition there would be. If you have control of both houses of the state house and the governor and every other statewide, uh, and again, we don't, as we sit, we don't know the auditor's outcome, but it's, very, it's potentially that everything is red. Is there um, an urban-rural divide that, that we see in, uh, sometimes is that showing up in, in your polling? It is indeed, that, that if you tell us that you live in a city, you're much more likely to be a Democratic voter. And if you tell us you live in the country, um, you're much more likely. In fact, that's one of the strongest demographics that predicts Republican voting. And so we talk about this, and, and, and you mentioned the, the share of persuadable voters. Moving forward, is Iowa going to continue to be a red state, or are there, and, and I'm not asking you to like crystal ball what the next election is going to be, but, uh, but more so, are there uh, Iowans out there, are there voters out there that could be convinced to be Democratic voters in 2024, 2026? Well, you know, I have a crystal ball collection, <laughs> but I've not, I've not consulted it for that. What we know is that that population movement is from rural into cities, and we know that city voters... And so what's, what's the cause and what's the effect? Do they move to the city because they feel alienated among their peers? You know, we talk about the great sort mm -hmm. um, and that people sort of want to live with people who think like them. I don't know. I don't think we, I think it's far more candidate specific, although certainly the parties and their ability to build a party structure that includes good compelling candidates obviously will say a lot about what happens going forward. Well, the answer to Aaron's question is something that Iowa Democrats are wrestling with because at the beginning of December, they're going to be before the Democratic National Committee's Rules and Bylaws Committee saying, hey, 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 don't look at those results from November 8th. We're still a purple state. And is there any evidence of that in the data? I, I, depending on how you want to count a purple state, I would think you need Democrats to win statewide offices since the caucuses are statewide. I don't, I don't see it. Looking kind of behind the curtain, not too much, but when we talk about <laughs> polling, uh, there was a NPR story this week that was talking about how challenging just conducting polls tends to be right now. I think that one of the people that was quoted and it was saying like, 50 calls to get one person to pick up. I know a lot of times I will look at my phone, I don't know the number that's calling me and not answering that. 
what challenges do you have in, in just conducting polls when there aren't very many landlines, people are skeptics about talking to somebody on the phone? How do you, I mean, what, what can you tell us about how challenging it is to conduct your line of work these days? Well, I, I used to say with every election cycle, it gets harder and harder, and, and then I've, I've narrowed that. <laughs> so every day, every yeah. second, it's, it gets harder and harder. We have some good fortune in that we poll here in Iowa predominantly. We poll elsewhere, too. But when, when people are called and when they answer the phone, the first thing they hear is, I'm calling from the Iowa poll. And so our response rate is not nothing to brag about, but it's much higher than many other fo- polling firms have. And I think that's helped us along the way, that way. Any other challenges that, that you're seeing crop up as the, you squeeze it more and more? I, you know, we rely on the kindness of strangers, as Tennessee Williams had one of his <laughs> characters say. And that is, we call you, and if you're kind, you will answer your phone. And then if you're more kind, you will stay on the phone with us and complete an interview. And there's really nothing in it for you unless you're sort of, you know, feel like there's, that's part of your patriotic duty, yeah. which we hope people would think that. So that business model is tough. That's just tough. In the early days of the Iowa poll, interviewers went door to door, and they'd like sit on the front porch, and they'd have a glass of iced tea, and they'd fill, you know, work on filling out a questionnaire. So, so much has changed, um, and the direction that things continue to change makes the idea of a volunteer uh, respondent pool look more difficult. For me, while it is difficult, it's my best option as I assess the other the failings of other methods. There's been a lot of talk nationally about turnout among the so-called Gen Zers. Do you know in maybe the polling data you have and now the election data you have in Iowa what that cohort did here? I can't tell you that the Secretary of State has published anything by age. I'm looking forward to that and really hashing those data out. We didn't see anything in our data that was a strong surge in youth voting. The, the point I do want to make, which you've not asked me, but I think this is very important to understanding this election, is that we saw a decline in early voting. And I mean enough that I, on the second night of looking at our data, I said, well, wait a second, something may be wrong. I talked to my phone bank to be sure that people who had already voted knew that they were welcome into this poll. All of that turned out to reflect what we saw happen, which is we had about half the proportion of people we consider likely voters say that they'd already voted, that we normally see. So it was, I think, uh, if I may... Was it 32 It was around in the high 20s, low 30s percent uh, from the state early ballots that were cast. uh, They said 30 percent? Down around 30 percent. From the previous gubernatorial election. Well, from 2018. Yep. From 2018. Well, we were showing in our data 15% of the people that we contacted mm-hmm. said they'd already voted. And compared to, of course, 2020 was huge mm-hmm. with early voting. Right. It was 43. Mm-hmm. So almost three times as much. And before that, 26, 25, 24 was what we would normally see. And so what happens, the consequence of that is that traditionally Democratic, Democrat, 
Democrats bank a whole lot of votes in early voting, that that's a big push that they have. And then roughly that vote is two to one. Roughly twice as many people voting for Democrats as voting for Republicans. And so when you shrink the proportion of the total electorate that is, to me, that's one of the compelling explanations for why Iowa went so Republican. Yeah, interesting. Um, kind of to turn the uh, camera on ourselves a little bit mm -hmm. here, but to get your perspective, there is uh, some sentiment out there that the, that the media writ large can place too much focus on polling and the horse race, so to speak, in campaigns. I'm wondering what your perspective mm -hmm. is on that. As a pollster, do you think that sometimes reporters get too caught up in, 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 in the polling in the horse race and don't focus enough on the issues in a campaign? Well, this is completely my opinion. I know the polls. So when reporters are reporting on the polls, that's not news to me. What would be news to me is what's actually going on inside the campaigns. Now, in, in the old, old, olden days, it used to be the reporters would get so caught up in what they saw as happening as, as showing a lot of momentum for a particular candidate that they, they were calling that this is the person who's going to win without any polling data to back it up. And sometimes our poll would come out and go, I don't know what he's seeing, but uh, the poll does not suggest that that's what's going to happen. So, you know, it's a nice balance for the readers and for the viewers to sort of have an understanding of why the campaign is doing what it's doing, but also where the traction is, what that really means. Well, there's also a conver conversation that more polling should focus on issues rather than candidates. How would that play out in Iowa? Well, we, the whole reason that media companies, like many of my clients, do polling is not just to show the horse race, but to help explain why the vote is happening the way that it happens. So our final poll included a question about what are the critical issues that you're thinking about as you're deciding your vote. And it was very clear that if you were thinking about uh, inflation, if you were thinking about crime as critical issues, you supported Republicans. If you were thinking about abortion, and thinking about health care, you supported Democrats, but by a narrower margin. Again, a partial explanation for why what happened happened. Were those the top issues that voters mentioned in, in this past election? The top issue that was mentioned was who has control <coughs> of the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of mm -hmm. Representatives. And that was a more even divide in terms of whether those people who said that was critical to their vote which way they were going to vote. So we talk about how races, even local races, are becoming more and more nationalized. That may be why. Well, when you watch some of the candidates, some of them were talking about, and they're not running, they're running for statewide office talking about Joe Biden mm -hmm. on the Republican side and talking about other issues that don't have, they're not going to play out necessarily in the legislature or in terms of uh, state government agencies, mm -hmm. but they saw that that's, where you want to link your wagon and hammer that home. We've talked about some of the races. Let's talk about some of the issues then. Um, you mentioned uh, abortion, reproductive rights. Uh, had some victories in places like Kentucky and in Michigan. What does the polling show for uh, reproductive rights issues here in the state? Um, we talk a lot about how it has a lot of uh, national support in polling. Does that pan out in the polls that you've put forward? 
you're, you're calling on me to conjure oh. up poll numbers <laughs> that are yeah. a little, little late in my history. Okay. So I, I think I would say that, that 60% roughly of Iowans say they think all or most abortions should be legal. And it's been sort of inching upward percentage point by percentage point over the, the last year or so. So that's where they are. In terms of having measured uh, the um, so-called fetal heartbeat yeah. bill, we had an early poll when that was being debated that that's, too, that's going too far for Iowa. Um, you know, we'll see. The, the tea leaves would suggest that, that's, that there is a constituency that wishes for abortion to be available here in Iowa. We'll see what happens with the legislature and, and so on. Missouri um, passed a marijuana initiative, so I guess people can go across the border and buy marijuana and fireworks. Um, how has your polling shown, if at all, change on that particular issue? We have seen the most change in terms of wishing medical marijuana to be legal, and it, and it is under some constraints now. And you've seen some upward progress in terms of recreation. We haven't measured it for a while, um, but that's something that many states are finding is useful. And that uh, this is going back a ways, but when we did some polling in Colorado when it was on their ballot, it reversed the gender gap. We had, there were more men voting for Democrats than, for, than women were, which my client at that time thought must be a mistake and could I please fix it. Um, but it turned out that the marijuana initiative brought in new voters and that that's what ended up changing the shape of that electorate. And, and that, I think, is what's interesting to ponder for the future. What, what can you do to attract new voters? people who sort of sit out the contest or people who are newly eligible to vote. That, I think, is going to shape what happens going forward. And another issue, uh, speaking about issues that drive or attract new voters, Democrats um, in some campaigns, including here in Iowa, talked about the, the health or the future of democracy in the U.S., obviously talking about people who doubt the results of elections and how that all led to the January 6th attacks on the Capitol. Um, and, and the need to take steps at the federal level to, to pres preserve democracy. Is that something, do you had, did that show up in, in your polling in this election? Was that a motivating factor for, clearly not enough to help Democrats right. win, obviously. Right. What, did it show up on the radar even in, in what was important uh, you know, it uh, was, to Iowa voters? It was something, this, excuse me for this, but uh, it's no, okay. something that we did ask about in terms of you know, who would be better, Grassley or Franken, in terms of defending the Constitution? Well, Chuck Grassley won that, but he won every trait that we asked about. So that's a little hard to say. I think uh, it, this is an issue that will continue to be of interest and something that we're going to be delving into. We, our, our company does work for the Grinnell College National Poll, and that their, their university president, Ann Harris, has teed that up as what she wants that poll to really delve into, the mm -hmm. health of American democracy. So we'll be doing more so polling tuned. on that. Stay tuned. At the end of the day, uh, as far as when you look back at the polling that you've done in this most recent cycle, earlier you were talking about, hey, I wish you would have asked me about this. Here's some information about early voting. What kind of like postmortems do you have on this poll that you think are important uh, to bring up when thinking about how Iowans are polled uh, in public 
opinion surveys like this. When I think about how Iowans are polled, you know, we're, we're a little early for the post-mortem. I think okay. the patient is still warm, <laughs> warm right, on the table. And, and what I'll answer with is where do I go to figure that out? I don't believe there were any exit polls that were conducted in Iowa in midterms. They're more selective <coughs> about where they're going to go. That's someplace that I'd like to go. Um, the Secretary of State, we're fortunate. Um, to have a lot of data that are available to crunch, and we'll take a look at it. The thing I learned from the, the 2020 election that was helpful in thinking, uh, uh, sort of analyzing other people's polls, is that the registration is 33, 33, 33, but 38% of Republicans voted. So if you were making your poll respondent pool look 35, 33, 33, 33, you undercounted Republicans. So I go looking for those sorts of things to figure out, well, what happened, what mistake could, could I make that, that I wouldn't want to and, and my method would not allow me to make, those sorts of things. Your poll was, uh, especially at the top of the ticket with uh, the Senate and the governor's races here in Iowa, the very last one was remarkably close once again to the uh, outcomes. How does November 9th feel like uh, for Ann Seltzer, especially on, on those days? Well, you know, it's the days before where you're kind of, you've released the poll and now people are talking about it and there's nothing to say mm -hmm. except we'll, we'll wait and see. I think one of the things that struck me was looking at um, the actual numbers of votes that got cast. And there were more votes, this is a fun fact, that were cast for Paul Pate as Secretary of State then were cast for Kim Reynolds. Also for the Secretary of Agriculture, um, is it Michael Nag? Nag. Mm -hmm. Nag. Um, he was the top vote getter. He was the top vote getter. 727,000 votes. There, there, you've got that number right there. For the governor's race, um, even though, so Deirdre Jajir did not win, and it was a sizable loss, but Tom Miller got 100,000 votes more as did the, the challenger for the Secretary, for the secretary of Agriculture. Um, and it's interesting to see, again, the ticket splitting yeah. that has to be going on there. And I think that's one thing that maybe going back to your caucus question on the Democratic side, is that Iowa has a long history of ticket splitting and less so in this election, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's forever stopped. Well, sorry, we have to stop this conversation. <laughs> Ann Seltzer, thanks again for joining us on this edition of Iowa Press. My pleasure. If you missed part of this program and want to watch it all, you can go online to iowapbs.org, where every episode of Iowa PBS is accessible. For everyone here at the network, thanks for watching. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com.